Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Hannah Abrams. Hannah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys? I'm good. Avi? Good to see you, Hannah. Good to see you, Tony. All right. Get ready. We're going to be talking about ticks today and tick bites today. Uh, And I got to say that when you think about tick bites, usually you think about infections like Lyme disease and Babesia, at least if you're in the Northeast, like where I am. But on this episode, we're going to be talking about and exploring a surprising association between tick bites and a sugar moiety called alpha-gal. And finally, how these two things can lead to, amazingly enough, a red meat allergy. So Avi, (laughs) what the heck is going on? This is such a cool story. I've really been looking forward to telling it on the podcast. And it brings together so many different strands, like you said, from severe allergic reactions to red meat, some geography, evolution, organ transplantation from animals into humans, and even anti-cancer antibodies. Like there's just so many layers to the story. And it's such a, such a surprising association, like you said. So we definitely have a lot to unpack tonight. All right. Yeah. Let's start unzipping the suitcase. So I would not usually expect tick bites and meat allergies to be linked. When did anyone even notice that? Like, how did someone put that together? Yeah, totally. Like, why are these linked? And I would never have expected them at all to have anything to do with each other. And honestly, it was sort of surprising to me that a meat allergy would exist. Like, why would you be allergic to meat? So the first report of an association was actually back in 1991 at a small, a really small medical conference in Georgia. And there were 10 cases that were reported, but this wasn't published at the time, of people developing hives or anaphylaxis after red meat ingestion. And it seemed to have occurred in all 10 of these cases weeks to months after tick bites. And again, this was a very small series, but there did seem to be some signal there, some association. And honestly, I think it was an amazing job by those clinicians back in the early 1990s to gather that exposure history from this sort of previously Mm -hmm. unknown association. And so they reported this finding at a meeting of the Georgia Allergy Society, but (laughs) For whatever reason, nobody followed up on it after that. So uh, um, this meeting of the three members of the Georgia Allergy (laughs) Society, they were clued in in 1991. When did the wider world get to sort of learn this fact? Because it didn't stay in that conference hall for very long. Well, or maybe it did. You tell us. Incredibly, 28 years passed. Um, Okay, that's a long time. (laughs) Before, you know, the story sort of reemerges. And, you know, it, it pops back up in 2009 when reports started to come out in journals of the emergence of meat allergies after people had been bitten by ticks. And there was a group in Australia that published a case series that reported on 25 patients who developed various types of allergic reactions to red meat within about six months of having being bitten, having been bitten by a tick. And the types of red meat that sort of they reported in their series were beef, pork, lamb, also game meat like venison, rabbit, and you know, they were in Australia, even kangaroo. Huh. All right. Well, what was the type of tick? Well, so since these initial reports, the association has really it's only been strengthened with numerous case series in different parts of the world with different types of ticks, depending on which part of the world you're in. So in the United States, the geographic distribution of red meat allergy for tick bites almost exclusively occurs in the southeastern part of the country. And it actually overlays beautifully and like almost exactly with the sort of habitat of the North American Lone Star Tick or 
Amblyoma americanum, which is sort of, you know, a proper species name. And that is actually the main implicated tick for these allergic reactions in the US, which again, almost all happen in, in the southeastern part of the country. But other ticks have been implicated in other parts of the world where this association has been demonstrated. Again, places like we've talked about Australia, but also Europe and Asia too. Okay. So it's, it sounds like we've established that geography plays a role because different ticks are maybe found in different parts of the world in different parts of the United States. And in the United States, the most commonly implicated tick is the North American Lone Star Tick, which is sort of localized to the southeastern part of the country, including Georgia, where that first conference in 1991 occurred. So can you start telling us a little bit about like why the tick bite would do this to these unfortunate souls? Yeah, it's really sort of frightening to think about, right? Like as someone who like does enjoy eating meat, uh, that like one day you could just wake up with a fundamental part of your diet presenting a very real health risk and frankly a danger to you. And then maybe for the rest of your life, not being available to you. And so all because a tiny tick bit you months before. So crazy. Honestly, sometimes people, they probably don't even, they don't even realize that they've been bitten by a tick. But again, back to the mechanism question, the key to the story is a tiny little sugar molecule called alpha-gal a molecule that you probably wouldn't think could wreak so much havoc in us. Alpha-gal is a great name for a molecule. (laughs) Uh, What It must be short for something which is much more difficult to say. What does it stand for? Its full chemical name is galactose alpha-1,3 galactose. So (laughs) slightly more chewy than alpha-gal, which is sort of much, which is more fun to say. But it's basically two galactose molecules stuck together. And as carbohydrate chains go, it's quite short. So it's technically an oligosaccharide. And it can be found sort of stuck onto glycoproteins and glycolipids in cells and tissues. But here's the rub, only in non-primate mammals. So primates, which includes us humans, we can't make alpha-gal. You will never, ever find alpha-gal in a human body. It is impossible for us to make alpha-gal. This is kind of surprising to me because I think we have galactose and you'd think we'd have the machinery to just like put two of them together. What happened either evolutionarily or bad luck that we don't have this ability? So we do have galactose in our bodies, like you said, but we lack the enzyme needed to assemble alpha-gal from galactose to sort of stick them together. So that enzyme goes by the name alpha-1,3-galactosyl transferase. And without it, you can't assemble alpha-gal from its components. Okay. So the reason we can't make alpha-gal is because we don't have this one particular enzyme. But we share like, what, 90-something percent of the rest of our genetic makeup with most other primates. Uh, So why would we as primate mammals, as opposed to other mammals, not have this specific molecules when all the other mammals can produce it? Right. I mean, this is this is sort of mysterious in my in my opinion too. Like like why would we have evolved to be different than other mammals in this small but clearly very important way? So there's actually evidence that evolving this difference and not being able to make alpha gal while other, you know, non-primate mammals do, this may have been a form of defense for our distant primate ancestors against viruses hopping from non-primate mammals. So for example, there was a 1996 paper in Nature that found that anti-gal antibodies in human serum was able to quickly inactivate animal viruses, which were coded in alpha-gal because they came from animals that make that sugar molecule, right? So the theory goes that our immune systems can flag viruses from animals as foreign because they have alpha-gal sort of as a signal. And that sort of protects us and also protected our distant, distant primate ancestors from infection, from these viral infections. 
So it's it's honestly pretty cool. That is really cool. And it's it's kind of a compelling hypothesis. So you said that your red meat is going to have alpha-gal. But I guess the question is, why would exposure to alpha-gal on meat after a tick bite induce these allergic reactions? You know, so there's sort of two parts to the answer to that question, right? So that the first is why tick bites? <laughs> and the second is what's happening to induce the red meat allergy itself? So, um, you know, focusing in on the tick part of the question first, let's zoom in on Lone Star ticks, which, as we said, are the offenders here in the United States in the Southeast. So it turns out that Lone Star tick viscera and their saliva both actually contain alpha-gal. And, you know, what's more, that the, the levels of salivary alpha-gal rise when it bites a human and the tick then sort of injects it directly into a person's skin. So, you know, that's how a tick bite could expose you to alpha-gal. And so that, you know, some have actually now even referred to this association as the alpha-gal syndrome. Okay. So I definitely believe that it has now gotten into our bloodstream. But going back to the tick piece, if it's mostly kind of non-primate mammalian mammals that have this, are ticks mammals? <laughs> Which I'm right. fully willing to be convinced on the course of this podcast if I just like miss that one in high school biology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a really important question, all this, right? Like, And I don't think there's a lot of certainty. And I tried hard to sort of find the studies that have looked at this. And it seems that we are sort of stuck with theories really as to why this like you said, surprising association for why sort of ticks have alpha-gal and, you know, non-primate mammals and why do both seem to make alpha-gal? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So the three main theories that I found sort of focus on several possibilities. So the leading mechanistic theory is that ticks produce their own alpha-gal. And I think that seemed to be from the literature that I read, what's thought to be the most likely explanation that they make it themselves. But it is possible that tick-borne alpha-gal comes from like the blood of animals that the tick previously fed on. But the ticks, it seems like you know they make it sort of in parts of their body, I guess, sort of outside of their digestive tract too, based on some of the research that's been done. So I, I guess people aren't convinced about that possibility, but it's, it is possible. And then the third is that there might be symbiont bacteria that live in tick saliva that are also able to produce alpha-gal. But honestly, like we don't really know. It, it seems to still be a mystery. Right, so independent of, of how it is that these non-primate ticks are getting their hands on alpha-gal, what's kind of the process of what's happening when you get these meat allergic reactions after you've had that tick exposure? Well, so exposure to alpha-gal via tick bite, it, you know, it leads to an IgE-mediated allergic sensitization to meat, which is coated in alpha-gal. So it can actually occur with other animal products too, like milk. So after sensitization... There is a subsequent exposure to alpha-gal when the person eats meat, and that leads to cross-linking of IgE on mast cells, degranulation, and then systemic allergic reactions. And that's what's been seen clinically, right? Like one to six months after these tick bites, people were developing hives, and some of them were even getting very severe anaphylactic reactions after eating meat. It's really terrifying stuff. Hmm. One other piece that's kind of interesting, though, is the geography. So like, why do only certain types of ticks cause this reaction with alpha-gal? Yeah, and I honestly did not see a good explanation for why only certain types of ticks can cause an alpha-gal-associated meat allergy and not others. So the main theories I came across, they focus on things like differences between tick species in terms of their habitats, their behavior, even like different tick anatomy. But again, this seems to be yet another mystery in the story that seems to not be well understood. All right, so this is fascinating, frightening, makes me not want to visit Georgia 
because I don't want to get bitten by a tick and not be able to, you know, have a burger. But you mentioned at the top that there were kind of other cool add-ons to the story, independent of the sort of tick-mediated, alpha-gal-mediated meat allergy. So what can you tell us about that? There are two other really fascinating facets to the story that, you know, I think are left to cover. One is cetuximab and one is xenotransplantation. Obviously. So let's start with cetuximab. <laughs> Why not? So, well, you know, let's start with cetuximab. So cetuximab is a chimeric mouse and human antibody against EGFR, and it's used to treat malignancies, including head and neck and colorectal cancer. And it also happens to be the drug that led Martha Stewart to be indicted in 2004 on insider trading charges when she sold the stock of IM Clone, which is the company that produced cetuximab one day before the FTA announced um, that it was going to reject cetuximab initial application for approval. But initially was approved. And then, you know, when the drug first came on the market in the US in the late 2000s, investigators noticed that many people were experiencing allergic reactions and anaphylaxis. You know, and perhaps this isn't surprising initially since we see allergic reactions to antibody-based therapies, not infrequently, right? But there was something odd about where these allergic reactions occurred. The vast majority of reactions were occurring in the U.S. Southeast. And in the 2008 New England Journal paper that described the association, the rates of allergic reactions and, you know, evidence of sensitization against cetuximab were two, they were only 2 to 3% in California and Boston, but then 20% in Tennessee. So does that geographic distribution sound familiar at all? That, that sounds like the distribution of good barbecue and alpha-gal allergies. <laughs> I would say in the yeah. Southeast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And almost identical for both, right? <laughs> so you know, they, they analyzed pretreatment blood samples and found that almost everyone who had an allergic reaction to cetuximab had evidence of sensitizing IgE antibodies in their serum before they were even exposed to the drug. So something had pre-sensitized them. And it turns out that cetuximab contains an alpha-gal moiety in its heavy chain portion. So what seems to have occurred is that people living in the Southeast had been bitten by ticks, gotten alpha-gal sensitized, just like we've seen with red meat. And then we're exposed to alpha-gal again with the cetuximab and had allergic reactions even on first exposure. So, you know, I didn't come across how many, if any of these cetuximab allergic people also had meat allergies, but you got to think that there probably was some crossover there. That is a totally wild association and not the one. If you said to me, oh, cetuximab, what's the classic association? Oh, you know, ticosodiated meat allergy. That's that's the one. And and Martha Stewart, insider training. Exactly. Well, yeah. Well, that one's the obvious I mean- one. <laughs> but I got to say, you also mentioned at the top that we would be talking about xenotransplantation. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> there's got to be something here. <laughs> Um, you know, for the those of us who don't remember what xenotransplantation is, just as a reminder, that's transplantation of animal organs into humans. What does this have to do with alpha-gal? Right. So xenotransplantation, it's actually really hard to do, although there's been a tremendous amount of research in that area, you know, given the impacts on human health, the continued shortage of organs such as hearts, kidneys, lungs, to be able to transplant into people who need them, right? So xenotransplantation, it's sort of a nut that modern medicine has not yet cracked. And the main reason that it's been so challenging is that the human system recognizes the xenotransplant as fundamentally foreign and it rejects it. And it turns out that one of the immunological signals that an animal organ is foreign um, to us is alpha-gal. So again, recall that humans, we don't make alpha-gal, whereas you know a pig heart you know, that maybe xenotransplanted into a person is covered in alpha-gal. So it seems to be that alpha-gal is one of the primary barriers to xenotransplantation. So what if what if there was no alpha-gal? What if we knocked out alpha-gal? Could we then transplant that organ? 
Yeah, this is sort of the billion dollar question, right? Like investigators and companies are are starting to look at this by creating alpha-gal knockout animals that don't make alpha-gal. And so an organ from an alpha-gal negative animal, it perhaps it might be immunologically less visible to the human immune system and therefore, you know, less likely to pardon the pun be whole hog rejected. But amazingly, you know, the first successful xenotransplantation of a pig heart into a, a human patient, it actually happened not that long ago in January of 2022 at the University of Maryland after the the FDA approved the surgery on an experimental basis. So the patient, whose name was David Bennett Sr., and he was very open and public about his journey um, in sort of the lay press and media, you know, he wasn't considered to be a candidate for conventional transplantation, but he was offered the first ever cardiac xenotransplant. And so the surgeons used the heart from a pig that was genetically modified to lack or be knocked out for alpha-gal in addition to, I think, a few other genetic modifications that they made. And the company that raised this genetically modified pig called Revivacor is actually a, a spinoff from the company that cloned Dolly, the sheep, back in 1996. So, you know, the transplant initially, it was successful. He woke up from the surgery with a pig's heart beating inside him, and he did well for about 40 days after the surgery. Unfortunately, the xenotransplanted heart began to fail. And about two months after the transplant, um, Bennett passed away. And it later became evident that the pig's heart was infected with porcine cytomegalovirus. And so that may have contributed to the organ failing and Bennett's overall decline in health, you know, but I don't think it's known for sure exactly why it happened. And, you know, some people have sort of compared this to the first heart transplants that were done where like, I think the first patient like, you know, survived like a few days at most, if, if not less, like, you know, so, you know, people are sort of, I think, think looking at this as a, as a potential um, breakthrough, but you know, obviously it's very, very sad that, that he passed away so soon. It's a, it's a sad story, but kind of shows the promise of xenotransplantation if we can figure out a way to, to as you said, just maybe mitigate this alpha-gal issue. Um, I suspect there's a little bit more before we wrap up. You, you got another pearl for us? One more pearl, you know, one one more wrinkle that really, it does actually bring us full circle. And remember the line of pigs who are alpha-gal knockouts, they're the, you know, the same company that produced them for xenotransplantation of organs into people, they've begun making the meat from these animals available for consumption. So in December 2020, the FDA approved the sale of alpha-gal deficient pig meat, or as the company called them, gal-safe pigs. So and essentially, they're targeting you know the market of people who are alpha-gal allergic from tick bites, and they otherwise can't eat meat. So I don't know what the process is of ordering this meat from this company, the buying these you know gal-safe pig meat, but there may be some hope in the future for meat allergic meat lovers to be able to once again safely enjoy that type of food. Wow, and we are not sponsored by Galsafe, but um, you know we could be if they were interested. No COI, um, no COI. <laughs> um, wow, every curious clinician listener should win a trivia this week from the amount that we have just talked about in this episode. Um, do you have any take home points? <laughs> From just this wonderful tour through immunology and epidemiology that you've just given us? Yeah, what other random yeah, trivia do. do you have for us? <laughs> Truly. Well, it's not a piece of trivia, but maybe it's sort of sort of a nod to, to Radiolab, which um, I think all of us sort of enjoy that podcast. But they did an, am an amazing sort of series of episodes in AlphaGal several years ago. So we'll, we'll link to those in the show notes. Um, because I think it's just hard to do a podcast about this story and not sort of reference them because they told it so well. But yeah, it's just there's so many layers and this takes us sort of 
such a sort of a sweeping look at so many different domains. I really enjoyed learning about it. But uh, my take home points would be that, you know, the bites from the Lone Star Tick in the American Southeast and other types of ticks in other parts of the world can lead to meat allergies. And alpha gal in tick saliva seems to sensitize people to alpha gal that is found on animal tissue that then gets consumed um, as food. And, you know, the, the cetuximab allergy actually occurs via the same mechanism because it contains alpha gal. And it seems to occur uh, almost, you know, predominantly in people who live in the American Southeast. And you know, and finally, alpha-gal knockout in pigs seems to be a promising avenue regarding xenotransplantation in the future. And these genetically modified animals, they may offer meat allergic people potentially a safe meat option. Whew. That wraps up another episode of the Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. And as a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We continue to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.